I am the master, and you will obey me. Listen to Dan Hadley on Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast, or face the consequences. for Type 40, the 100th edition of our Doctor Who podcast from the Fandom Podcast Network. I'm Dan Hadley, Birmingham's king of the geeks and your dependable designated driver. And whether this is your very first trip across the Who universe with us or not, you're in the right dimension for free speaking, big thinking, eclectic and eccentric Doctor Who talk for everyone. Whatever decade or century you started watching, reading, or listening along to the ongoing adventures of our hero, Doctor Who. We talk about it all on this show. All views are encouraged, and there could even be a few laughs along the way. They've not stopped us yet, have they? So come and step into our TARDIS and share this journey together here with us on Type 40. We are back with a very special 100th journey on Type 40, and... Uh, with me for this cutting the ribbon really on us hitting treble figures it's my mate simon horton <laughs> hello dan it's nice to be here it's funny isn't it doctor who fans really we do like an anniversary don't we we like we like marking those things with the 10th the 20th the 100th whatever it is the 50th the 60th we just like anniversaries we like we like round numbers don't we doctor who fans <laughs> There is something. I don't think it's just Doctor Who, though. I think there's something about the number 100. I was obsessed with the number 100 when I was a kid. I remember the thrill, for example, Simon, of realising that I was able to count up to 100 without <laughs> prompting <laughs> and when, go all the way back down again in reverse too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When was this? A couple of years ago, was this? Just last week. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. Isn't it funny how... how society and humanity works that we just do like bound numbers why do we mark them there is something it's a milestone there's also a feeling of as somebody as people who make content for you there's something of the earning one stripes 
about reaching yeah. 100 too and authenticity to being around for this long that people have put up with us for this long <laughs> yeah i think as as, as trevor simon would say back in the uh, in the 90s they would say they'd give themselves a pat on the back i think wouldn't they at getting to 100 i think we can give ourselves a pat yeah. on the back at getting to 100 i can't believe it's been 100 i do think that some of my feelings about the number 100 do actually come from doctor who itself because I remember being a very, very tiny kid and uh, an announcer, one of the continuity announcers mm-hmm. on the BBC, yeah. reading out before the start of The Stones of Blood, the Tom Correct. Baker story. Correct. And they announced, didn't they, that it was yeah. the 100th Doctor Who story. And yeah. I remember just being dumbfounded by this, Simon. Yes, I remember this really, really clearly as well, because obviously back in those days, we had no idea. There was no bunting out at that point to say it was the 100th story or anything like that. I don't even remember. I mean, Doctor Who, was Doctor Who Weekly going at that point? Yeah, it was just about, I think. But no mention was made about it being the 100th story. So I remember the same as you, Dan. I remember sitting down on that that Saturday tea time, ready for the Stones of Blood and the announcer announces that it's the hundredth story did i hear that right i remember saying to my mom and dad what, what did they did they just say it was the one because it was been and gone and in those days we didn't have video recorders we didn't have iPlayer and like that to replay it back did i actually hear that correctly did he actually say it was the, and, it, and so it was doubly exciting because i couldn't be 100 percent certain that i'd heard it right <laughs> it was just like all oh, your christmas wow doctor who is a hundred it was as if that little show that I liked that was on once a week for not that long really had seemingly been around forever and nobody told me (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was it was it was it was a real epiphany moment that was and it was the fact that obviously with the BBC announcing it in those proper BBC tones as they used to have back in the good old days it gave it a certain sense of of gravitas and of of, uh, integrity and it felt very very genuine that they were they were marking this and suddenly as a result we sat down and started watching part one of the stones of blood and it felt more important somehow it had a real feeling as i say of weight because it was the 100th story and you were kind of waiting for something special to happen in the episode and of course it didn't it should have done but it didn't there was glitter after all and not party poppers as such but yeah well they famously that the, the hope was wasn't it that they were going to do wasn't they weren't they going to do um uh, some sort of birthday cake was that in this episode or, yeah or? there was a, a cut scene from the beginning of the actual episode Correct. where i think it was canine wheels in a cake yeah, and I can't remember whether they actually shot it and then cut it or whether it got cut at scripting stages. I think Graham Williams, the producer, was the guy that clearly vetoed it. I believe the cake existed, whether it was real cake or... That the cake was actually on set. I think they were due to film it. I don't think it ever got recorded because I think it was cut. But I'm, I'm pretty certain the cake was actually in the studio. So they certainly had a sense of, uh, of, of, of occasion. I wonder where that cake is now. Do you think it's in Neil Cole's Museum of Classic Sci-Fi? It should be. It should be preserved. He'll have, he'll have preserved it in varnish and all manner of clever things by now. Um, but of course, that's the 100th classic Doctor Who story. But what about yeah. the 100th episode? I don't even know what... I haven't got a clue what the 100th episode is. I'd have to sort of hazard a guess. Go it's on, going to be months. somewhere, I'm reckoning, around about late Pat Troughton, early John Pertwee, I'm maybe guessing... That's exactly what I would have guessed. 
and we were both completely wrong. It wow. was Escape Switch, <gasps> which was episode wow. 10 of the Dalek Master Plan. We can actually watch this one. It exists, and it aired on January the 15th, 1966, this one. Wow. So within three years, they'd already got to 100 episodes. Right, so 100 that episodes. Quite yeah. stunning, isn't it? No matter how many special features we watch or interviews we read about the momentum of making the show back then, it's only when you hear figures like that that it really hits home. And it's actually nice it's a Dalek episode. That's completely appropriate. So it's as it should be. But isn't it funny? You kind of wonder if they knew at the time that they were making it. Did they know? Did they, had they tweaked that it was the 100th episode as they were actually recording this episode? I'd be surprised. I mean, bless their hearts, they did seem to be on such a treadmill. Yeah. And obviously it was ephemera, really. I mean, you could say it was at the height of Dalek mania there. Yeah, it was. And the show oh, was. Was, was right in the hearts of the British public. But television was viewed differently, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Ch children's well, family TV, even more so. Well, absolutely. And and clearly there would have been a, no announcement before this one that it was the, the 100th episode. That that just wouldn't have, have, have been of any interest to people back in those days. I, I it, it is odd. I think it's only really in, in, in latter decades that we've come to sort of um, start to mark these 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 milestones. But it's funny because I often think this when I'm when I'm sort of reading up about production of Doctor Who through the years and, and you'll read that for example they were in the studio recording whatever story the attack of the blob monsters on on yeah. the 23rd of November in a specific year and you kind of think wonder whether anybody sort of thought to mention in the studio did you realize it, we were recording this on on, on the anniversary of, of, of Doctor Who's birth and of course they wouldn't of course they wouldn't I just imagine some camera that. some camera operator at the side of the set just eating a Mars bar, just look up and go, what? <laughs> exactly. They would never screw. But, but I would imagine, I have, a, I have an inkling, it's probably very, very different nowadays. So, you know, we're talking about the classic run there. Yeah. I would be surprised yeah. if in the modern era, if they were recording on the 23rd of November, I'm pretty convinced that they would then make some sort of announcement to the crew. It would be on, it would be yeah. on the tube. Schedule. And the same with it, if it was a milestone number episode, again, they would make, uh, they'd refer to it within the production team themselves, I'm sure, in the way that it just didn't happen in classic years. Because you're right, they were on a treadmill, they were just churning them out. Now, that's not to say that the, the modern production team aren't on a treadmill. Of course they are, they're working just as hard. It's just that. It's a culture, isn't it? Different culture, completely different culture. Back in the day, as Terence Dix famously used to say, all they were thinking about was just getting a television, mm. a, a program on the television. Get it, don't get it. Instead of having the test card go up, that's all they were worried about. <laughs> Would you so, like to take a punt? Then you mentioned the new series. Would you like to take a punt on which was the 100th episode of New Doctor Who? Oh, wow, so we've already so we've already surpassed 100 on on New Who, have we? Wow, I'm going to guess. Let me think about this. I'm going to guess it's got to be a Capaldi episode. Am I right or am I miles off? You're not miles off, but you're not right. <laughs> okay, okay. So it's Matt Smith then. It is. It's a Matt Smith episode. Okay, I'm going to just hazard a complete guess then at, oh, I don't know, The Bells of St. John. That's my... Close, it's the Crimson Horror. Oh, that's close. It's that season, isn't it? I'm in the right season. Um, yeah, I'm yeah, this was shown right. in May 2013 in the anniversary year. So you weren't too far off, really, just a few weeks, a handful of weeks away. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So I just wonder whether, why they, while they were making that, they were very aware that that was their 100th episode. There may have been some mention of it in Radio Times, you know, places like that. 
you do wonder, don't you? You do wonder whether whether it simply was a case that again they were just far too busy, far too much on a treadmill, and and, and it was only after the occasion that they actually realised that it was the hundredth episode. I mean, that's a good episode for to, to be the hundredth. It's a shame it isn't a Dalek episode somehow. But to be fair to them, you know, they were a very short while away from another big anniversary later that year. So yeah. hey. So yeah. You can have too too much of the uh, of the bunting and the party poppers and, oh, and uh, the backslapping. Yeah, that's, you know, that's an interesting question, isn't? It? Can you ever have too much bunting and party poppers and too much nostalgia? It's that excuse, isn't it, to to look back, to celebrate, to remember? Yeah. Well, wait and see what we've got lined up for the main course for this celebration. <laughs> that's coming up. In the meantime, if you'd like to do some real-time travelling of your own, this is the point where I remind you that each and every edition of this show, past, present and future, is just a tap or two-way on the device of your choice. If you know where to look, 100 great conversations, reviews, previews, interviews, geek-outs and deep dives with all our regular voices. We know there's something for every fan at type40.podbean.com. I also want to state again my sincere appreciation to our companions on the other shows on the FPN for the for the masses of support, encouragement and friendship offered to us, bringing Type 40 to you time after time. As always, we'll be making contact with everyone and everything going on across the rest of the network later on in the show, so stay tuned for that too. Now, right back at the beginning of season two of Type 40, Simon, when you and I and Sarah sort of took the regular reins, really, I've got a bucket list, if you like, of conversations and topics that I really wanted to have, not just as a Doctor Who podcaster, but as a Doctor Who podcast listener too. The one that you're about to hear, this was one of the biggest, because, yeah, try as, as we might, the majority of us, who watch, adore and obsess over Doctor Who to one degree or another over the decades. The sad fact of reality is, Simon, that next to none of us are able to say that we can actually see it or have seen it all. You know, we go to great lengths to keep it all alive somewhere, somehow. I'm not knocking the recons, the animations or the novels or anything like that. But we can't just go back and pick up all of Doctor Who in a box set or binge watch it over a week off work, can we, the way that Lost in Space or Star Trek fans can, because chunks of it don't exist. It still is so gutting to think that, yeah, at this moment in time, there is huge, huge chunks that we simply cannot, cannot watch. And I am just so envious of people who were there at the time and were able to see, you know, when you hear people say, oh, yeah, I, f- I saw the first episode of An Unearthly Child go out. We'd all love to to be able to say we were there right back at the very beginning. And, and thus we watch, you know, there must be people out there who have seen every single episode right the way through. And boy, you know, you, you, you're envious of that simply because if it was a case that, OK, the stuff is now they've found it all and so we can now see it okay that'd be great but we can't we can't and so there are a select number of people out there who who probably will will forever be unique in that in that we will never ever ever be able to watch the full full history of doctor who anymore so it's only those people that were there at the time that can say they were able to do it and boy am i am i envious of them you can't help it can you can't help but be a tad envious because there's been so much of it throughout the decades all our heroes and companions all those different models of the TARDIS and all the monsters that they've gone into scrapes with it seems like 
it's about to be reinvented again. So there's yeah. no reason to expect it to actually stop mm. anytime soon, even if it could be a bit of a wait this time. But when you think about this ongoing modern mythology, the kind that would have been originally sort of devised, its foundation's been put down in print in years gone by. Now, this is one exclusively for the TV. And I have always wondered about those viewers who have seen it all, who watched the TARDIS materialise and dematerialise for the very first time and heard the, the Doctor and all the regulars speak their first words. And that's exactly what's coming up right now. Ian McLachlan is a writer and classic TV expert who's been watching the series since he was literally in short trousers. Sarah and I spent a few hours in his company recently, and here's our conversation with Ian right now. It's a common complaint I hear from pop culture vultures of all generations at some point how many feel they were we were kind of born too late it could be it's out of a hankering from for a less frantic age a, a less connected age a less atomized age or a time where values may have been slightly more reliant with our own on some level or it could just have been that they'd have loved to have had a chance to book tickets for the stones in Hyde Park, Sarah, or maybe even seen Star Wars in cinemas originally before George Lucas started messing around with it. <laughs> or maybe it's just yes. the allure, that allure of those stories that, that uh, our parents may tell us about uh, games they may have played on street corners when the, the summers were impossibly long or the, the late sort of lamented sight of white dog poo. Do you remember that? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and for, for Doctor Who fans, for people like us, quite naturally, we'd be wanting, if we could go back in time, <laughs> the first place we'd probably go would be to back in front of the TV to watch some of those missing episodes the, uh, the BBC so tragically, mm -hmm. unforgivably jumped. Yeah, but our guest on this 100th edition of Type 40 is a man who was there, who's seen it all, or near enough, and has a memory like a steel trap. Now, our mutual friend Richard Molesworth, who's the author of Wiped, Doctor Who's Missing Episodes, describes this man as one of Doctor Who fandom's earliest leading lights, believe it or not. I know. Oh, Drum roll, everybody. <laughs> and Ian McLachlan's with us this time. Hi, Ian. Hello, Dan. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Ian. Wow, what, how can you beat that, Ian? You know, what an introduction. I know. How long did it take you to compose it, Dan? <laughs> Don't spoil the magic, Ian. Um, <laughs> the thing is, uh, with Doctor Who and um, Adam Adams Lives, which is one of my other favorite programs, it's about a manner of time. Somebody uh, is reactions yeah. to a different age. So that's uh, a theme. Uh, a lot of us... Uh, maybe think about the past and we would like to have been uh, uh, lived somewhere else but um, you must remember there were bad times in the past as well as good times so it wasn't do you think we over, we over romanticize these times do we? Absolutely yeah I would say that because <laughs> uh, um, I, I worked in schools and um, school in my day in the 60s growing up was not quite the same as as today it was very much more the we had corporal punishment. There was a lot more fear. I, I've worked in schools a lot of my life, and it's far far better than it was in my day. 
but it's always interesting to, to <laughs> one time set against the other. Um, another favorite program of mine is Logan's Run, and there's an episode in that called Man Out of Time, which is my, in my opinion, the best of the Logan's Run series, and that deals with the same sort of situation that the past, uh, what people did in the past, and uh, so forth, and compare it with the, with the present, uh, or what it might be like in the in the future, is fascinating. Fascinating. As you can tell, this man is steeped in the history of not just Doctor Who, but of the entirety of telefantasy. You're joining us from your home at the moment, aren't you, Ian? Where is your yes, home? Where, where do you reside? I stay in a place uh, in Scotland, in Blaygowrie, um, which is the place I used to go to when I was a, a child from my summer holidays, because my grandfather was a minister um, outside uh, Blaygowrie, and I have very happy memories of time spent in Blaygarry. Some of the times, watching Doctor Who. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yes, it's funny you should say that. That's a great segue because, yeah, we are here with him for a chat about the very dawn of the Doctor, of Doctor Who. And, Ian, a lot of us who have come along since imagine quite regularly what it must have been like to have been there when this entire spell was being cast. I'm not talking necessarily about with Bill and Verity and Waris and uh, Caroline Ford and everybody else, but simply there on the sofa or behind it. And you were there, weren't you? Year one, day one. Not quite. Um, on the 23rd of November, 1963, I was at a scout gang show. And um, that was when the first episode of Doctor Who went out. And um, it was only later at school that people talked about this strange new program that had appeared, Doctor Who. And um, the Saturday following the transmission of the first episode, they repeated that first episode, and then they showed episode two, The Cave of Skulls, after it. So I wasn't there at the very beginning, but I saw the very first episode, and I saw um, the second episode. I missed seven episodes, um, in the first season, and I can tell you what I was doing um, <laughs> when I was missing them. Yeah. But I've since seen all the episodes from there, apart from one, Marco Polo 7, Assassin at Peking. And um, a few years ago, somebody found the film can of it. Unfortunately, there was nothing in it, um, which <laughs> was disappointing. Yeah. And Marco Polo is funny that that's story is the one that with the missing episode uh, that I haven't seen but I've caught up with all of the other ones um, since then and um, as you probably gather these are my favorite episodes the the monochrome years are my favorite by far um, so um, what happened was at school as I said people talked about it mm. and I said mm, I, I, I must watch that and I think junior points of view had mentioned it as well um, so I watched it and I remember uh, the scene with the doctor uh, in the cave of skulls and I turning to my father and saying, father, is that man a goodie or a baddie? And he reminded me of the old grandfather in the old charity shop. The old charity shop was a, a Dickens cereal and it was, um, it starred Patrick Troughton, interesting enough, as Quilp. And uh, I had watched that because uh, as a family, 
we regularly watch the classic serials on the Sunday. Mm -hmm. um, that was one of the things that we always watched. And um, then um, a few weeks a few weeks after that, uh, at primary school, uh, we were we were asked if we would write about our favorite TV series. Now, my favorite TV series in 1963 was Badger's Ben. And I was delighted. The talking pictures, the wonderful talking pictures. I've rescreened the surviving episodes of Badger's Ben. Um, thankfully, that there are a few episodes. There are about four episodes to come, I think, uh, of the second season. Like Doctor Who, it's very funny that Badger's Ben have a few episodes from the first season and the second season, but nothing from the third season. That's where they their most missing episodes, like mm -hmm. Doctor Who, uh, is the, the the first three seasons of that. The third season is the one with the missing episodes. But Badger's Ben was a, a program I loved. It was about um, an animal hotel, and I was always very interested in nature and uh, natural history and uh, and uh, wildlife, and I regularly watched lots and lots of programs. But Badger's Ben, uh, I wrote that um, that was my favorite program, and I was. Um, laughed by my classmates they said oh you should like doctor who doctor who is the 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 thing which will be successful mm -hmm. and um yes gradually uh, i it became my favorite program i still watch badger's bend and i used to watch badger's bend with these to be chocolate cakes which we got from marks and spencers which i called badger's bend cakes so there's nothing better than sitting down watching badger's <laughs> bend and eating badger's bend cakes they didn't turn into Doctor Who cakes. They didn't um, uh, change uh, that way. But um, I, I suppose a show it. like Badger's Bend was a more traditional, wholesome family show, slightly geared more towards children. Absolutely, it was. It was. It was a children's program. It's interesting seeing seeing it again. All the uh, educational aspects. They 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 uh, tell the, the children watching. Um, how they look after their pets, and uh, but Doctor Who, when it started, had an educational level as well. Yeah, there, there was Wasn't that kind, that level. Yeah, um, back then it, it was. Um, but uh, yes, I mean, I, I was always an avid television viewer. Uh, I was told that when I was a child, um, I knew all the Andy Pandy books um, off by heart. Now I don't think there were Andy Pandy novelizations. But um, there were books written about Andy Pandy, Teddy, and Luby Lou, and apparently I loved them so much I knew them off by heart. <laughs> um, Rewatching re Watch with Mother, I would say Ragtag and Bobtail um, or The Flowerpot Men uh, I liked more. But I remember when I was a tiny child uh, creating a fuss because I couldn't get to see Andy Pandy, and I was maybe three or four. <laughs> yeah. So I was always. If I was wanting to watch a TV program, I was always wanting to watch it. Yeah. And, um, For those who uh, don't know, though, Ian, uh, Watch With Mother was a kind of strand of programming, wasn't it? That was It yeah. was a whole afternoon's worth of programming that was divided up into what you could call favourites with their own little segments, as you say, Bill and Bell, Ben the Flowerpot Men, yes. Muffin the Mule, all those kind of shows. They would have their little 10 or 15 minute slots and they'd be, it'd be laid out like a menu, wouldn't it? So the children watching would, be know, would know exactly what was coming in mm -hmm. what order. Well, not quite. Um, they had a different programme every day. So uh, on Monday, it's picture book. I um, uh, had 
Patricia Driscoll, who went on to be the second maid Marion. Picture book, Andy Pandy was on Tuesdays. The Flower Pot Men were uh, uh, Wednesdays. Ragtag and Bobtail was Thursdays. And Fridays was the Wooden Tops. So you only got one uh, 15 minute. Because oh, the, I see. But it was more a case that the entire the entire afternoon, though, they would sort of oh, gradually no, no, no. ramp up children, children's programming. No, 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 no. It wasn't like that at all. Because um, TV, at this point, back. though, back in, back in the early 60s, although television wasn't in its infancy as such, there were still only those two TV channels, weren't there? ITV yes. had come along in the mid-50s and, and challenged the BBC and and immediately sort of set up its stall in partnership with ITC and the adventures of Robin Hood. And adventure television was something that had gradually come to life because at the same time, the BBC were making 1984 with Nigel Neal, obviously for adults. Mm. Science fiction and fantasy were present, but they were kind of poles apart. I mean, it was either seen as something very, very highbrow and broadcast late at night, like Nigel Neal's stuff, Mm -hmm. or it was almost infantile and broadcast in the middle of the afternoon uh, and uh, just squarely for children. Doctor Who managed to carve out its own place in the schedules and its own niche, didn't it? Somehow. Not quite. Um, Because, not quite, there's a lot of myths and uh, things about that. You set some of these myths right here and now, Ian. (laughs) One of the myths uh, is Grange Hill started gritty TV programs for children. Now, much as I found Grange Hill interesting as a teacher, um, trying to get uh, tips from the other teachers uh, of of how uh, uh, good teaching was and bad teaching was, um, if you look at some of the uh, serials that were transmitted as um, uh, on the five o'clock slot, that some of them were not very um, sort of uh, cute and cuddly. Quite the opposite. Um, for example, my uh, favourite thriller writer was Francis Durbridge, and I've been very excited because they've been publishing a programme of all uh, Francis Durbridge works. Um, it's, it's just the, the last few months it's it's come up, and they got the original scripts. He he was more famous for radio for uh, putting Paul Temple, but I remember um, one of his serials, The Desperate People. Um, which has been released in Australia. And uh, if you go into Amazon, you can get your copy, Desperate People, starring Death Coley, which when Telefantasy fans know as Commander Trainer and Time Slip. But uh, th- there was co- that gave me nightmares, and I was uh, stopped watching it. Uh, I had to stop watching. Doctor Who was never something I found frightening at all in any way. But um, because... Some of these thriller series uh, involve people getting stabbed, people getting hurt, and they were, it's not in a fantasy land on a strange planet. Yes. Uh, they were more realistic. Now, there was another uh, series that has been released on DVDs by Network called City Beneath the Sea and Secret Beneath the Sea. And they were science fiction programs. They starred um, Gerald Flood, didn't they? Yes, it did. There were three, sadly. One point to me, at last. <laughs> Sorry, you got it, Sammy, right? I've got a point. (laughs) (laughs) It was Star Gerald Flood. And uh, I remember watching that series. And I didn't realise it it predates Doctor Who. Um, Emerald Soup, which was against the first um, story of Doctor Who, was, I think, 
um, sort of science fiction-y, uh, a wee bit. The, um, it, Emerald it was, Soup. Emerald Soup was called. It doesn't exist. It, it's fascinating. Um, as you know, I love old television. I love any old television. Give me old television every day, um, apart from The Masked Singer. Now, uh, old television is, is really good. And uh, the serials that exist and the serials that don't exist is uh, purely random because um, Patrick's Troughton's Old Crosby Shop doesn't exist in the archives. Martin Chuzzlewit, another, uh, another Dickens one, doesn't exist in the archives. But lots and lots of Dickens stories uh, going back to the 50s serials that the BBC made do exist in the archives. So it, it's just a, a bit of potluck. But City and Secret Beneath the Sea are available, uh, and maybe they're out of print now, but they were available on DVD and that's early. And of course, an ITV, there was but all- those shows here, those, those shows and Pathfinders, they did lead in one yes. way or another, albeit in a meandering way. They did lead to Doctor Who, didn't they? Because Sidney Newman was involved, wasn't he? He was involved in Pathfinders, yes. He came over from Canada and um, had started the Pathfinder. Pathfinders is very interesting because George Coloris, who was in the first episode of my favourite Doctor Who story, he's a Marinus, uh, was the, the baddie, um, Harcourt Brown in it. Um, he was a quite uh, an interesting uh, character. And of course, the first Doctor, I always say, uh, wasn't quite a goody-goody. And um, another programme I loved, the 60s was lost in space and dr smith was the same um he was quite good but he was quite bad as well and the doctor had that that sort of edge to him which i like so characters that cool. you were i wouldn't say you love to hate them but that the sleen that were edgier than perhaps the traditional hero mm -hmm. and that's and they had a certain yeah. aura around them which mm -hmm. a, a child would be sort of drawn to sarah yeah well yeah it goes back to you know this multi-dimensional you know characters i see we seem to have forgotten what what that's like you know in current um tv at the moment uh, but yeah I, I i love dr smith in uh lost in space but it's interesting that you you brought that up about seeing william hartnell as the doctor and having to ask your father you know was he a good or a baddie because there was that air of mystery about him. I mean, uh, you know, we didn't know anything about him. We didn't, all we know, you know, we appear in this junkyard and suddenly you're in this ship and then you, you don't know where you're going and what's going to happen. And it was really, really kind of frightening in a way. Cause you, and I think that was one of the um, reasons why people wanted to tune in, you know, what's going to happen to these teachers and this, you know, this little girl teenage girl and you know it was kind of an enigma and it's just interesting that even you know children uh you know pick up on this because a lot of people kind of think you know it's children's tv um you know we've got to dumb it down for them and actually children are very very intelligent and you know they can really pick up on these things and they like as you know Ian, you know being a teacher it's uh you don't underestimate children at all. <laughs> and I suppose that in that first episode of Doctor Who as well, they build it up too, don't they? Because it's not until halfway through that we actually 
meet the doctor you know he's mm-hmm. we meet all the other characters first and yes. he's spoken about isn't he he's a what do, what do they say he's a doctor isn't he ian and barbara they're, they're talking about him about writing home or going home sending a message home to susan's parents and between them they're sort of comparing notes about how little they know he, and all we get is he's a doctor isn't he and yeah, they, they go and try and seek out the truth and make some sort of contact with the old man and uh that's when it all begins. That's when we all get caught up in the entire story that we're still watching nearly 60 years later, Ian. But what was the effect on you and on, on you personally watching that series come to life over those initial weeks? Because I would, you'd been sort of wrangled into watching it collectively uh, as schoolchildren. It, it does seem to have had that Pied Piper effect on you quite slowly. But once you were there, what kept you there? Well, it's, it's, it's fascinating, Dan, because... I had two friends, uh, two of my best friends at primary school uh, were into Doctor Who, and uh, we talked about it. But by the time I got to secondary school, um, you didn't talk about uh, you liking Doctor Who. I remember we had a, a quiz in the English class where we were asked to, um, to, to, to um, give a question. And I chose Doctor Who and I got oh groans that I had asked Doctor Who. But the same class, um, I, I, we were asked to write a play and I wrote a play on uh, Adam Adamant Lives. Uh, I got a chance to play Adam Adamant, uh, which was great. Um, but that was uh, acceptable because it, it was adult. But it's interesting because you have, you have stories of people playing Daleks in the playground or uh, people pretending to be, uh, that wasn't, that wasn't me. Um, I was always somebody, if I like something, I like something. If I didn't like something, I didn't like something. My parents always used to say about me, um, most normal uh, boys like football. Ian uh, likes Doctor Who. I can't understand <laughs> that. But um, football is fine uh, playing it, and I, I can understand all that. But uh, why would I sort of? support another team that i wasn't part of but that's my uh, uh feature of that so i liked it it gave me a chance to explore historical periods uh, i was always interested in history um although my father criticized me uh, he said you were no good at science and that doctor who and all that stuff you like um is science um but i wasn't very good at science but history i liked and i was very sorry and historical ones uh, left. And when I became a teacher, um, I chose, uh, we, I had a class of um, um, sort of youngsters that didn't do exams. And I used to explore the Aztecs with them. Uh, we, we had a course in the Aztecs and um, various other places the doctor had visited in past times. So it was a serial. And I like um, the, the classic serials that we watched. As a family, uh, I watched the um, classic series. We all watched them on a Sunday as a family. Um, and that's why I missed the first episode of Lost in Space, because it had against um, uh, David Copperfield. And we were watching David Copperfield, and Lost in Space was on at five o'clock at the same time. But I was delighted when the next week, the derelict, uh, it was on at three o'clock or something in the afternoon, and I got to watch Lost in Space as well. It was great. Um, yes. Um, if, if I liked a program, I really liked it. And uh, you, you kept watching. And uh, probably because I was a collector, 
um, I collected stamps. I was really into stamps. And I wanted to have all the stamps that you could get. I transferred that to Doctor Who. I wanted to watch <laughs> all the episodes. And uh, I got sort of um, displeased if things turned out and I missed an episode. I wanted to watch them all, which is interesting. And um, starting from about First of Fear, I think, episode, I cut out the cast lists from the Radio Times. And um, I've still got them somewhere. But yes, the cast list. No, I, I hadn't that. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't have the an earthly child one. It was only from the, the beginning. And what I did was I discovered that um, you could order old Radio Timeses. And there was a, a in Edinburgh, where I lived at the time, there was um, an office um, for the BBC. And you could go in there and they would lend you books of old Radio Timeses. So I was fascinated because it wasn't just Doctor Who I liked. I liked television. Um, I was a real television fan. In fact, when I applied for university, my first hobby was TV program history. And everybody said, what on earth is that? And I said, well, I love old television. And that was in 1970. Mm -hmm. So I've always loved old television. But um, the Radio Times, the original one, um, I, I discovered you can send a wave and get back copies. And I sent away, but I didn't send it to my home address because I knew my parents wouldn't approve. I sent it to the school address <laughs> from the headmaster for, for using the school address to get the real attendance. So if they if they didn't approve of the yeah, this is I Sarah, this is low level geekiness, isn't it? Absolutely. One hundred percent. If your parents didn't approve of this, what we now call geekiness, how did they feel about the educational aspect to the show? Was that too low level for them to see? Or were, were, could they appreciate the fact that Doctor Who had that historical and scientific input as well? And did any of that put you off as a child? Did you ever get to one week where it was going really science heavy and think, oh, God, no. let's no. get back and meet the Romans or do Never. something slightly more outlandish? Never. Um, my parents mixed up with my um, love of Doctor Who because they knew that um, they could very easily discipline me if I did anything wrong oh, yeah. by denying me to watch Doctor Who. So they only yeah. had to say, you do that. Oh, no, I'm, 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 I'm stop that. And therefore I behaved as a child because I was terrified that I wouldn't be allowed to watch Doctor Who. Um, it's crazy when you think about it now. Um, but uh, what's the, oh, that's the big thing. People nowadays have access to Doctor Who whenever they want. Whenever I want to watch a yes. surviving story, I get it off the shelf. Um, in these days, unless you were at television, when the program was screened, you missed it. And there wasn't much chance of getting to see it again until we repeated Evil the Dalek. Mm. It was really exciting. Um, I didn't realize that they would bin all uh, the episodes they did. I, I thought they were all in the archive because mm. I knew from the Radio Times that the programs were recorded. And I thought, well, uh, I actually thought at the end of the first season, maybe they'll show all the episodes at a big, a big gala or a big screening uh, in a picture house or somewhere. Um, but it continued. Now, it's interesting. I was delighted that it continued. But there was a part of me that thought, if this program would only stop, I could do all the things that, that I'm missing out on doing. Uh, <laughs> 
I have to be at the television at 5.15. Okay. And it was on, in those early few years, it ran the most of, most of the year, didn't it? You know, yes. it was like 40 weeks of the year or something. Yes, yes. yes. But so, so it was, it was, I actually described Doctor Who as a soap opera. It was like a soap opera. And, but unlike most soap operas, like Coronation Street and Emmerdale uh, and EastEnders, uh, it moved around. So you had the same cast, the lead cast, but you went to different places. So it was an interesting soap opera. But the cliffhangers were very important. That's one of the big things that they missed out on the, the recent thing. And you're wanting to know what happened next, you happened next. And although the first Doctor is my favourite Doctor uh, by far, um, I also liked the companions. There wasn't a companion that I didn't like. So it was the team. And I remember, but my it uh, was was around Christmas time uh, when the the flashpoint, the the last episode of the Dalek's Invasion of Earth went out, and I had family to stay. My grandfather and my aunt were staying with us in Edinburgh. And my brother said, "Oh, you're upset when your uh, grandfather left. You're upset when your aunt left, but you're more upset when Susan's left." <laughs> and I was, yes, I was. Uh, I liked Susan a lot. And I was very upset when she left. And I so remember did those characters feel like an extended family to you then, from from the, the perspective of somebody who was watching on the sofa every single week. Yes, I mean um, Jeremy Bentham, as you know, um, who's done a lot for fandom. Um, I, I, I used to know Jeremy quite well, and Jeremy um, said at one time that he felt he's like the the fifth companion um, on this journey. And they're doing a journey. Remember I said at the start that my primary school was quite, quite um, oppressive. Um, so you had that dream that you could go uh, anywhere in space and time. Uh, fascinating. And, um, you know, it, it was the dream that maybe there was such a thing as a TARDIS. Uh, nowadays, it's quite ridiculous because... Although I knew it was a production, because I was always interested in who the producer was, the director was, behind the scenes people. Right from the beginning, I was aware of, of these names. Um, and I knew it was a TV production, it wasn't real. But uh, it was that wish fulfillment, the same as I was a huge and enlightened fan when I was growing up. I used to read, uh, try to read every one of the Famous Five books. And you wanted to be one of the Famous Five and having an adventure. Uh, so we, I think a lot of the youngsters of the 60s imagine themselves having these adventures. Now, in these days, um, I don't know what, what they would be like because all the health <laughs> and safety issues come into play. So, <laughs> Ian, hearing, you, hearing, you talk, hearing you talk about yeah. that, though, it does make me wonder because, Sarah, as people who've, the pair of us, certainly all my life, mm. watching this, not just Doctor Who, but any kind of fantasy but yeah particularly mm. doctor who is that when you get into it people somehow those people around us our friends and our family who don't get it they assume that we think it's real to some extent yeah. they, they don't <laughs> seem to realize that we're perfectly capable of realizing that this is the real world inside the telly is make-believe and there are people who who put it all together and yet the, the irony is, though, isn't it, Sarah, that we, we do spend more time looking at the credits of a TV show than the, than the average person. So those names, whether it be Verity Lambert or Philip Pinchcliffe, John Nathan Turner, Russell T. Davis, 
whoever, we recognise those names and we tend to go, we want to find out more about them too because they've had this effect on us, the effect that it had on Ian in the 60s, me in the 80s and you in the noughties. Yes. That's all I can write, baby, now. <laughs> yes, I mean... Uh, I, sorry, sorry, Sarah. Are you okay? No, no. Uh, yeah, it's, again, because it isn't... On on one level, it is just entertainment. Yeah, absolutely. But I think, you know, this kind of... This geek culture, it it resonates on so many different levels. And, and you know, that, that what you were saying, Ian, about escapism, I felt like that watch you know when doctor who returned in 2005 that's what got me into it it was you know it was rose running away from her mundane life and being able to go absolutely anywhere you know that's a very <laughs> universal but you know it's a very popular thing a lot of people want you know want to escape their lives for a bit and and you know we are fascinated and when it when it's something that means a lot to you you know you care about these characters you see them every week it does affect you, but yeah, we also do know, you know, that we can switch it off and it isn't, it isn't real. Is, we, we seem to have had similar experiences and similar conversations yeah. in different forms, decades apart, Ian. Well, that, that's, that's what you discovered when I uh, was involved in fandom, that um, I wasn't the only person who didn't much like watching football. Um, but I watched Doctor Who instead. There were lots of us out there. Um, it wasn't uh, just... Um, one or two people. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, you're always aware of the real world and real problems. And, um, I mean, the way the world is at the moment is, is absolutely tragic. Mm -hmm. And um, although I like fantasy television, I spend a lot of time watching political programs and news mm -hmm. programs. So it's not as if it's an escape. Um, but you also ha always have to dream that's very important. Everything in moderation. Yes, yes, yes exactly. And if, if you don't have a, a dream of a better world, I mean, um, I used to think the Doctor Who would end when um, the Doctor and Susan returned to their own planet and it was peaceful and nice. Uh, didn't happen that way. You felt that that was the natural concluding point that the series was working its way towards in those early years? Yes, yes, I think so. But, uh, he, he would get back home. Um, but um, you thought it would end, and um, it's it's gone on and on. But what is very interesting, I wanted to catch up with what you said earlier. Um, the first Doctor has been played by William Hartnell, Richard Herndl, um, uh, of course, uh, I forgot the other name. And, yes, oh, David Bradley. and another person is doing Big Finish because the first Doctor and to some extent the second Doctor were characters. Bill Hartnell wasn't playing Bill Hartnell. Um, Bill Hartnell's my favorite actor. I've seen him in other things. He was wonderful in a, in a film called The World Ten Times Over when he played a, a father who was distraught with what happened to his his, his daughter um he played in uh, he played the sergeant uh, sergeant and sergeant majors and things but he played comedy characters he was in a, uh, a comedy film with mr pastry richard hearn who was a potential for doctor who at one point uh, but he was playing a character um but some of the doctor who's uh 
that follow them uh, would be not so easy to to uh, have somebody else playing the part. Well, mm. Terence Sticks always said, Ian, and I, I think that this has become a bit of an urban myth. Terence Sticks always said that William Hartnell played the Doctor as a grumpy old man because he was a grumpy old man. And don't get me wrong, I know that William Hartnell was a complex man. Yes. But I think that Terence, God bless you, Terence, I love Terence Sticks. Yes. I do think that that was selling Hartnell short as an actor. <laughs> He's a blunt actor. He's an absolutely blunt actor. Um, so is Patrick Trenton, uh, was a blunt actor as well. Um, but Bill Hartnell, unfortunately, and what's so unfair, yes, he fluffed his lines and he got them mixed up, but people do. I mean, uh, how many lines have I got mixed up uh, in the last five, ten minutes? Um, people do that. Uh, but, the, but the fact is, if you look at these fantastic Blu-ray sets that they release, sometimes they release... Um, uh, film of behind the scenes things. Yeah. Uh, now, unlike Richard, I can't watch three hours of it. If it was a black and white story, maybe, but not the um, not the season twenty six or whatever. They, they, they had to be retakes, retakes, very rarely to retakes. So you can't really compare um, how it was made in the sixties to how mm. it now in the same ways. You can't compare the ratings because um, in the 60s, you had to be at that spot. So only fair comparison is how many people were sitting watching Doctor Who um, flux um, when it was transmitted, because that's the only comparison. Um, it's great that now you can do all these things you want during the week and watch your Doctor Who as an extra. But and I think this is important. I don't think it's likely. There, there are some people like probably you two but it won't have the loyalty factor you had to give up a lot in order to watch your favorite program regularly and adam adam lives was uh, i said another favorite lost in space uh it's a funny story about lost in space um lost in space was sort of on my tv our channel was stv that we got but uh, we got a new television for the first episode of the war machines i remember watching the first episode of the war machines uh, on this new television. But this new television, in a not very good picture, gave you Grampian television as well. Now, in these days, ITV channels really showed important programs at the same time. And I reckon that while STV stopped showing Lost in Space, it was shown in Grampian. But I wasn't really allowed to watch Grampian. So what I had to do is to pretend I've practiced my clarinet, um, all being at the same time watching this terrible ghostly picture of Lost in Spain. <laughs> um, so it wasn't just Doctor Who. If it was a committee to a program, I wanted to see it and I wanted to watch it. I remember getting upset. I think it was Tales of Two Cities, which also starred Patrick Troughton as Doctor Manette. Um, and I missed the last episode of that. And I... I my parents said, if I went on holiday and I was missing my favourite programme, I was like William Hartnell, a grumpy old person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then that was the grumpy young person. Uh, so, uh, yes. So, no, yeah. he said about Bill Hartnell that he was felt he should have been a bigger star than he was, but there was a William Hartnell fan club way back um, oh, I've heard before about I was born. Uh, he, he was a, a, a recognised film star. Mm -hmm. um, so, but he didn't get as successful as he wanted. But he was, um, he had a very difficult childhood. 
Um, he had a very difficult life, but he, he was a fantastic actor. I mean, he was, <laughs> he, he could play uh, a part and he, it was him that you watched if he was in a scene. You didn't watch the other people. He had a, he had just, a magnetic <laughs> quality, didn't he? Real, real star quality. Yes, yes. He's a film star. Uh, he, he did a play. Um, what do you call it? Uh, what was it called? Swallows or something. Um, he did it for a year on the stage. But um, it, it strikes yeah. me, Ian, that that actually, I was going to say back then, but even now, come to think of it, we have we have some shows that run on and on and on and they get reinvented and they change leads things like silent witness and midsummer murders we're kind of used to that kind of telly now but back in the 50s and the 60s okay sometimes like when james garner left maverick so they bring in roger moore they try and keep the thing going you, you know there's was, there was elements and examples like that but ge generally speaking tv shows probably had a lifespan of between three and five years at the most didn't they because tv was still quite new and it was growing all the time the evolution of more people having them for a start and then the advent of of extra channels and and uh, color and all that all those kind of innovations every few years something new was coming as tvs were gradually getting bigger but as a child watching something like doctor who evolve and roll out and you were growing with it and you having in your head what you figured would be a natural resting point for the show where the doctor and susan or at the very least the doctor would would get home and the story would conclude when when they found methods to keep the show running did that surprise you as a child did you ever feel that either that you were leaving the show behind you you were growing out of it or that the show was going off in a different direction to you because they'd cast for example patrick Bowden or john pertwee well, that's, that's the very interesting... Uh, or even uh, just uh, companions. No, it was very interesting. Not the, the companions. Um, I knew that Bill Hartnell was leaving because my parents told me that. Um, and that's when uh, I knew that, that he wouldn't be in it. Um, and I remember watching Power of the Daleks, episode one. I was at my aunt's house at the time and I almost switched off the television. Uh, because he, I thought he was taking the mickey. Because Doctor Who, for me, has to have a serious possibility. So that's why I don't really like burping um, dustbins and um, scenes of the TARDIS um, in a big expanse of space and leaning out of it. I like the believability factor. But Patrick was a, a favourite actor of mine uh, well before he did Doctor Who because he was in Paul of Tarsus which was a fantastic series. Um, also in Paralytasis with David Spencer, John Mark, who appeared in The Abominable Snowman, and The New TARDIS, which is being released soon, has a big, big, uh, massive article on The Abominable Snowman, pre uh, preparing us for the animation. I just, we, we, we adverts now and again. And- um, no, I should say but, to people who don't know, TARDIS is the magazine of the Doctor mm -hmm. Who Appreciation Society, mm -hmm. isn't it? You can get it on um, eBay. You can get your copy on eBay. Um, it, it, it's going out shortly, about, about a month's time. Um, I've, I've got a wee few comments in it, but not much. Anyway, uh, Patrick was in Paul Tarsus. Uh, he was in um, the old Christie shop, as said. And he was also the headmaster in, in uh, Dr. Finn's case book. 
So I had seen him in other things. So you knew the name and you kind of knew who he was, even though he had this chameleon-like quality. So did that invest a certain amount of trust in you that offset that, this guy's just taking the mick? Well, I I wasn't very pleased. Now, having seen the animation, uh, and I prefer the colour animation, um, it it, it isn't as way out and silly as, as I thought it was. Because Doctor Who... Uh, like Lost in Space. Lost in Space started out very serious and then got silly. I still liked it, but I preferred it when it was a bit more serious, but not as serious as the reboot that they've done. Um, So Patrick, um, I liked, and I stayed with it, uh, because I liked Polly a lot. Um, She was my second favourite companion. Uh, So um, uh, as long as Anika Wills was in it, I I was quite happy to, to watch it. And um, I, 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 you know, as time went on, in character, I perhaps more like Patrick's doctor in some ways than I was William Hartnell's doctor. Uh, and by the end of the uh, the Power of the Daleks, you know, it, it it wasn't the same. And Bill Hartnell was always my favourite, but um, I just accepted it as the same way as you get different companions, um, some of whom I liked more than others, but I like them all. Um, mm. You just accepted it and part of the thing um somebody uh, i i did an article for some magazine and they didn't really agree with me in this but i think this is important patrick troughton uh took over the part um um early on in season four but there was two stories before that uh he didn't take it on at the beginning of a season so mm-hmm. his episode the episode 10th planet episode uh four and then part of the dots one a week apart so it was a part of a continuing story mm-hmm. i think that made the difference to to having a big group break and then uh having this new doctor so was it as if, if the show wasn't making a big deal of it it was sort of business as usual a fortnight mm-hmm. later at the mm-hmm. longest then there was no reason for children not to as well to keep up and to keep up keep watching yes yes it was it was a continuous story it was a continuous serial and that's one of my things uh is the bbc sometimes wants us to see doctor who as a continuing epic story like the greek myths and legends and sometimes they weren't happy to see it as doctor one doctor two Mm -hmm. doctor ten and they want to play it both ways and that's why I am one of that these. That sounds like the BBC, doesn't it, <laughs> Just a bit. <laughs> That's why I would have been quite happy if Jodie Whittaker had played Romana or had played a new, better than that, a new Time Lord completely. Um, you and me, you and me both, mate. You're very much preaching to the yeah. choir on that. One. <laughs> yeah, same here. Uh, speaking of speaking of Doctor Who monsters, <laughs> I was wondering what you thought, what you thought about uh, about the Daleks and Dalek mania, because obviously the Daleks were there too to carry children over during that initial renewal, weren't they? And it, so that was 1966. Dalek mania had happened. That is a bit like, it's one of those moments in Doctor Who's existence that for those of us who came along later, sorry to keep rubbing this, this in here, but for those of us who came along later, <laughs> something we hear about, the equivalent of, of a Woodstock or something, that it was amazing and we missed out on Dalek mania. But were, th- were there really that many Daleks absolutely everywhere? And did everybody really love them as much as it seems that they did? 
No, uh, no, no, they didn't. <laughs> uh, it, it's quite in I love the picture. <laughs> The, the 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 model Daleks they made back then are nothing like the ones they make today, which are quite realistic. But the, yeah. look at that; it looks partly like a Dalek and partly like a tent or something like that. And the famous yeah. Dalek playset that were put out oh, in nineteen sixty-five. George Dixon uh, saying, "Get away! My program is on later, and my much more important than yours." Um, <laughs> never mind. Um, the, the the thing is. It wasn't a big thing for me, the Daleks, strangely enough. Okay. Um, it was just another story. Um, very good story. But um, I, I, I preferred Keys of Marnus, which was written by Terry Nation as well. Uh, I liked the Vurd. I thought they were quite an interesting uh, creatures. But for, uh, but for something like the Daleks, though, to be taken, not not just, how can I put this? They, they, broke, they broke through into a kind of mainstream, away from just being a niche thing or being a children's thing into a grander pop culture onto a grander pop culture stage okay maybe not to the extent that the beatles did but they became sort of icons of the 60s in the way that the the mini was and, the, and that the mini skirt was maybe is that is that overstated now in the 21st century or did that actually happen i it depends i, I think um the daleks were i mean i i, I think the daleks were important but all of the Doctor Who was, and if you look at it, uh, I know people um, don't like to think about it, but the highest ratings for the Doctor Who in the 60s was The Rescue, I think. Um, the story after Dalek Invasion, oh, I think, got more viewers. Um, I love so, The Rescue. Oh, yes, yeah, that's story. interesting. Yes, I, I, I appear in the one of the extras for The Rescue on DVD. Um, <laughs> As a much younger version of myself, but uh, anyway, um, yes, the the sixties had lots of things. Simon D uh, was one of my favourite interviewers. Uh, there's a fascinating book. Whatever happened to Simon D? Because uh, D time came after Doctor Who later on, uh, so there's a link there as well. Um, but is is it the the? There's lots of things about the sixties. But there are people who like Doctor Who, people who like all of Doctor Who, people who like just the Daleks. Uh, but the Daleks kept coming back. If they had created another monster and that other monster had kept coming back, maybe it would have made a difference. Um, I don't know. I mean, they, they were uh, fantastic creations. Um, but I don't know if you think, but recently um, seeing all these tanks in the desperate situation that, that we face at the moment, um, the tanks look like uh, sort of prototype Daleks in a sense. That the, 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 they remind me of, of tanks. The way um, they move. Yes. But the interesting thing about the Daleks is, is of course, the, the the mutant monsters inside. So it's not that which is the monster, but it's it's what's inside it. But you see, that's the thing about the magic of Doctor Who, is nothing is what it appears to be. The police box is not a police box. Mm. The doctor is not an old human being. Mm. Susan is not a school child. Mm. Yeah. The thing is, running through Doctor Who is the thing is, look at life. There is more to life than you think. Life is not straightforward, as some people think. 
-hmm. And to get the most out of life, you need to dig a bit deeper. So I I think that's part of the the magic of it. That um That's just it, give me goosebumps here. They did, yeah, ain't that? <laughs> yeah. I need to clip that. <laughs> that was beautiful. It's interesting. Seeing the um the new episodes in colour and in YouTube, there's lots of people who've colorized pits of it. And I love it. I'm, I'm not one of these people who said, oh, it should be uh, black and white because it's made in black and white. Um, in the same way as the pilot, uh, No Place to Hide for Lost in Space, uh, is available on the Blu-ray uh, Lost in Space first season uh, reboot in color. I love it. I love it. Yes, it's very cheap now in Amazon. Not as much as I paid for it. And um, that's, that's, that's the thing. The costumes. As um, I was looking at a clip in Marco Polo, uh, no, no, it's not a clip. It's it's, it's um, uh, when everybody was worried. Marco Polo's turn up. No, no, it's hot. Some of the photos from Marco Polo, and uh, oh, it was superb. Um, it was a bit pity that it wasn't made in color. But having said that, black and white is spooky. Um, yeah. The outer limits. The, the original Outer Limits, not the, 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 the remade Outer Limits. The original is spooky because it's in black and white. The music in Doctor Who, right from the start, um, Sermon of Norman Kay's music is very spooky and otherworldly. But there's a lot of programs in the 60s that were quite sinister and quite spooky. And um, I was very lucky that um, recently I saw a clip from Jane Eyre which was on at five o'clock. And I was amazed at how strong, how scary, how um, otherworldly that was. Um, I mean, I, I remembered it uh, because I watched it as well. Sadly, not all the episodes exist. But, oh, there was a lot of spooky programs in these days. Do you think it was? Do you think it was in the performances? Because obviously most of the sets were three-walled. Everything was a lot, lot more intimate. I mean, you hear Hartnell that we've got, record haven't we i don't think we've got anything actually on camera of him saying this but he's certainly recorded as speaking about i think it's peter purvis that told him come to think of it that the reason why hartnell did all those gestures around his face was because he knew that the camera was going in close and one thing i've noticed about a lot of period dramas and things made around that time is it's also very people seem to do a lot lot more with their faces and pauses in between yeah. sentences last longer you can see people thinking their way through a part and through a scene sarah do you know what i mean yeah i do yeah I do. And a, lot, a lot a lot with the hands i noticed hartnell did that a lot because again that that was what you could see yeah. that yeah um yeah, I talk it, with my so, hands anyway. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's interesting that it, it's only a subtle difference, but it just seem it, it didn't seem to happen now these days on TV. Well, nowadays on TV, you can't even often make out what they're saying. Never oh, yeah. anything else. I think all that's, that's a contributing factor. Yeah. I think all that's a contributing factor to what you're talking about, Ian, mm. in creating that kind of because you feel like I think that with old television. You feel like you are in the room with them in sometimes some really quite private and introspective moments. Oh, yes, Be because you see, um, armchair theatre is mm -hmm. what Sidney Newman was involved with. And it was theatre. And I think nowadays television, particularly television drama, has gone the route of film 
as opposed to theatre. Um, but these early Doctor Who, and that's what's interesting about Doctor Who, is it started really as a filmed theatre plays, really. But you could suspend belief because people go to the, the theatre nowadays, there is a bits of a sets. I mean, uh, often nowadays they don't even build proper sets and people can suspend their imagination uh, and watch it. Uh, they don't have to have it all spelled out. Now, there are some programmes, particularly ITC programmes, like um, The Saint, uh, Ronald Hopkirk, Department S, these programmes, um, which wouldn't be as good if you filmed them in monochrome or you filmed them in, um, in tape uh, with film sequences. They work more, better as films. The Avengers are a typical example as well. They are mini films. But mm -hmm. a lot of the drama that I enjoyed uh, from the 60s was actually basically in the studio and in location. Uh, they filmed it, or if it was a dangerous setup, or there was a reason the character was off on holiday, whatever, um, that the actor was off on holiday, um, then they, 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 they filmed it. But usually it was on, it, it, it was, was on um, camera and videotape. And I think people will ask who would you like to see as the new doctor and i have to say i don't know that many um modern actors and actresses when whereas in the 60s i could uh list masses of them and i think maybe it's just me because i'm older but i think the actors and actresses on the past 60s 70s in the main not all but in the main had more charisma than a lot of actors today. I mean, um, I find it strange that Ross Kemp, for example, he's hosting a new game show at the moment on BBC. Now, Ross... <laughs> Ross Kemp's doing a game show. He's yes, not got a personality. Well, I like Ross Kemp, but Ross, game show? Ross Kemp is quite interesting because because he's quite, uh, quite posh. But um, he's not in the style of somebody like Roger Moore or Peter mm. Wingard. Um, Not suave. Well, it's it's it, it's that sort of thing. I mean, uh, he's very good at what he does, and he does. Josh Kemp does brilliant documentaries uh, with with, with uh, Hardman, but he's he's hosting a game show, which is quite weird because mm. you don't expect it. Why did Rylinger not not get that job? That's what I want to know. Um, <laughs> because he usually get gets these jobs. Um, it's interesting. But I, 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 it's very difficult because there isn't an, an instant actor that I would say, oh, he's good. But if you ask me who I think would make an interesting Doctor Who, it would be the guy who is in Shakespeare and Hathaway that plays the part of um, the Shakespearean actor. I think he's really good. This is the guy who works in the office for them, isn't it? They're, they're, yes. they're detectives, aren't they? There's a man and a woman. They work, yes. they live and work in Stratford-upon-Avon. Mm -hmm. It's a nice little uh, daytime detective mystery show with a bit of bounce to it. And they've got a, a, a resting actor, haven't they, who works as their kind of PA secretary. That's, true. Yeah, that's one to look out for. Oh, one to look out for. I'll look at that. When we're trying to work out who's next, then we maybe should look at him for the Doctor. He, yeah, he's done a stage play. Uh, he's in a stage play mm -hmm. at the moment. Um, he's um, he's a very interesting actor. He's very charismatic. Uh, Mark Benson, who, who's in uh, he's in Shakespeare oh. and Hadley. I remember him from uh, New Customers Only. 
he was in these adverts for um, a bank, and that's why I noticed him. And then he appeared in the first episode, Rose, that you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. Sarah. And um, um, I like him; he's good. But somebody suggested him as Doctor Who. No, no. Yeah, you do make an interesting point in because I think. I've noticed, you know, that you know, actors like William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton and, you know, John Pertwee, the, you know, the classically trained actors and, you know, a lot of them, you know, they, they've got a craft in theatre and I do think that makes a difference. Uh, just, just playing, you know, because the Doctor's a character that's got so many dimensions to it and, you know, so many layers and I, I don't, it's difficult thinking of modern actors that can pull that off. I mean, Say, but do you think that older actors from that time as well in particular, even the ones that are still with us, I mean, we lost Roger Moore just a few years ago, mm -hmm. but there are several that are still with us. I'm thinking in particular of, of our own William Russell, for example. Mm -hmm. The ones that, are, that, that were leading men at the time had the same quality that movie stars had got in the way that even, even when we see them on the convention circuit, yeah. they're people that we don't really know. They have an aura about them that speaks almost as if it, a cousin of old Hollywood, of what a real star used to be. Well, you see, Patrick Troughton didn't go to conventions until John Nathan Tillman persuaded him because he said, yeah, if, I, if I'm seen as a personality, then they won't take me seriously. That's the difference. Yeah. Yeah. And an ideal actor, I, to my mind, is somebody that can play various parts. Now, um, because of the uh, current situation, um, some of the parts that Patrick played in the past, he wouldn't get to play now because he wouldn't be allowed to. Mm. Uh, he's too far removed from that character. Um, yeah. So the, the, I, I was watching something interesting. I, I don't know who, who it was that was saying it, that he liked modern actors because they could be real uh, down-to-earth and realistic. Um, for some things, yes, but, I mean, uh, there was a time when I wanted to be an actor, but I'm not good enough, and I don't have a good enough memory, strangely enough. But um, You, but not a good enough memory! Actually. Um, <laughs> what, what did you say just now? I can't remember. Um, the, 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 the fact is that people... Um, yeah, people in the past, the, the good thing about being an actor is you can play somebody completely different to yourself. That's what's mm -hmm. the fun. Playing yourself is boring. And uh, you talk about Roger Moore. Roger Moore was actually quite a good actor, uh, really. The uh, man who haunted himself was one of my favourite films um, of, of, in, in, uh, altogether, not just Roger's films. Uh, but he had the charisma uh, and film stars do it, although they, they basically play themselves. I mean, it's it's quite interesting. My favourite James Bond is George Lazenby, uh, which people say, what? George Lazenby? <laughs> well, he's actually the first Bond I actually watched in the cinema. Yeah. So perhaps that has something to do with it. Um, but uh, yes, um, my least favourite is probably Daniel Craig. But he was the more realistic Bond, yeah. the most realistic uh, as same, same as Timothy Dalton, of course, he, he as well is a uh, quite realistic portrayal. Um, Roger Moore is uh, plays it with a smile. Uh, and, you know, Sean Connery, 
the first one was, was quite good. But I, I actually watched <laughs> um, a couple of weeks, uh, a couple of months ago, I watched all the James Bond films in order. Mm-hmm. I've not really? watched the, the, the most recent Oh, one. yeah, I'd like to do that. Uh, I've done that for years. Yeah. Well, Blu-ray, my sort of box set that I bought, uh, it's it's stunning. Doctor No in color. Oh, fantastic. You're making they, my they, mouth water. I've been We need to do another, we need to do a separate show about James Bond. About Bond, yeah, come back and talk to us about Bond. But I was curious though, Ian, because we talked earlier on at the top of the show about you being there as a, a very much a, um, a leading light, an early figure in organised Doctor Who fandom. I know you're squirming, don't worry. <laughs> but, we t- no, but you've, not, so you went from the I mean, the the uh, the closest the easiest way I can think to encapsulate it for people is you went from being that schoolboy sat on the sofa or on the floor watching your heroes or extended family even play out these adventures regularly every Saturday tea time in, not just in Doctor Who but in other shows you went from from that to actually interviewing a great many of them of them didn't you on the convention circuit in the late 70s yeah, and into you. the 80s. And so, so you're able to speak to them and have a connection to them. What sort of experience was that like for you going from that situation to another? And were they, what was the aura around them then? And, and did you feel that same connection that when you were a child? Was it a well, the, same the first thing I did was in 1968, I wrote to Bill Hartnell. And my letter that I, really? I, I got from him is still... Uh, was published in a couple of uh, books, so it's quite well known. Um, it was from me that the the story of the son of Doctor Who uh, was mentioned. Uh, oh, really? I, oh, wow. I asked for him to yeah. come back, and he said, there'll never be two Doctor Whos, which is ironic because that actually happened in the three Doctors. Um, so he was the first one. I think the second one, uh, was later was Caroline Ford. I wrote a couple of letters to her. And um, when I went to university uh, and had some money and, and, you know, I lived in a student residence of my own. I was the only person in my residence who had posters all over the wall. A fish tank, tropical fish tank, not cold water, tropical fish tank, and a telly, black and white television. I was the only person in the in the student residence. So what I used to do is set up the uh, cassette tape recorder to record Doctor Who, and it started with um, episode three of Day of the Daleks, and then dashed to the common room to watch it in colour. So uh, that's what I did, and and I wrote to a lot of people. I wrote to Jackie Lane. She sent me a lovely photograph because I said I know photographs of Dodo in my collection. And she sent me a nice photograph of that. Moyne O'Brien. Now, <laughs> Moyne O'Brien. Very interesting. The first letter I wrote to her in the early 70s would be, she answered my questions, and then she said, basically she didn't like Doctor Who and didn't want to talk about it. And then... Lots of them go through that phase, don't yeah. they? Bless their <laughs> hearts. I get it. Very determined about that. And it, it amuses me uh, because there's the rumours that that she's uh, done some um, interviews and things for the box set. Um, she didn't do her own, um, you know, they, they were um, real-time uh, films uh, mm-hmm. interviewing most people that they didn't interview more, apart from a one for 
think it was the William Hartnell one that she she talked about. She she did some inserts, right? She's not not a full program, uh, but she was determined that she didn't like Doctor Who, and the same way Peter Purvis. Um, I didn't write to Peter, but I have got a um, a fanzine somewhere uh, years ago where he says um, he hated Doctor Who. Basically, of course, that's all changed now. It's very much. A message him on Facebook saying how much I liked uh, the, the the days when he was in it and um, what, what, what effect it had, and he was a important part of my uh, growing up. Uh, and he he appreciated that for a lot of people, he was more important a figure than he ever thought he was. Remember, there was a wee ten minutes program about heroes, TV heroes, and they were talking about. Peter Purvis as not as successful as John Noakes, but Peter Purvis was a hero in Doctor Who and Blue Peter, so yeah. he had two um, to his. I credit. would argue that Peter Purvis is much more famous than John Noakes. Certainly, yeah. certainly now. now probably has been for a long time. Yeah, yeah. National yeah. treasure, Peter Purvis. Love the yeah. guy. But uh, yes, yes, and it's um, it, it's, it's it's fascinating that the, the the views have changed. So. When I um, I I've, I've joined the Doctor Who fan club, this is what you want to know, which is run by Keith Miller. And Keith lived in Edinburgh. And um, laterally, Keith said to me, there's this guy in Glasgow who wants to take over from me. And he's doing everything he could. And I was Peter Capaldi. Capaldi. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> oh, Peter! Oh, <laughs> so the legends Peter. are true, then. <laughs> that's what. That's why I knew. Uh, Keith had actually published two books about uh, the, the uh, newsletters he pr produced. They're still available from Lulu. Uh, two copies, Volume One and Volume Two. I feature briefly in it, but um, you know, shout out to Keith. Um, I, I used to see him. I didn't realize how young Keith was because I was at university. He was sort of in his last year at school, I think. And uh, Keith had audio cassettes of um, episodes of Doctor Who. Um, so I could listen again to The Dead Planet, um, which was very exciting uh, to listen to that. And when Doctor Who fandom really uh, got going with Duas, they used to show episodes. Um, and I remember seeing seeing it and i thought before it went on will it affect what i think of doctor who seeing the original no i love the original even more <laughs> was funny, last night uh, i was um sort of watching things on facebook and uh i happened to stumble across some clips from the sensorites and some clips from yes which i find oh i'm enjoying these oh it's finished um it was <laughs> So I still, the black and white ones, uh, the monochrome ones, oh. They wonderful. still have so, the magic, they still hold the spell yeah, over you. Yeah. So Keith laterally uh, w w was sort of winding down and he got me to answer some, uh, some, some letters. He gave me a whole pile of letters. And then after that, um, Doctor Who Appreciation Society uh, started. It started with TARDIS, the, 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 the magazine. It was very cheap about is about I don't think it even was a shilling. Um, well, it must be more than that, uh, fifty pence or something uh, for a, an issue. And then they had the convention, 
and uh, I could go down to London, I was a student there, and I, go to the con I was at the very first convention. And what happened is I turned up at the church hall, I think on the Friday night, to say, oh, uh, can I help you in any way? Can I help anybody with anything? So I, I got to know the organisers, and then John Peel, who's written some Dalek novels, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. John Peel got to, to do the, the writer's pool. Now, um, Dwas fandom <laughs> was quite interesting. Um, there was um, debates because you have to remember that as well as fans, we are collectors. Mm -hmm. People seem to forget that. And sometimes you say, I mean, uh, Richard uh, and I have often discussions because we, we Zoom uh, quite frequently uh, about things. And he, he has some thing, merchandise that I haven't got. And uh, you, you sort of compete. And uh, the other guy said, it's not competition. And I said, yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> when you've got collectors there, what have you got? What have you got? Who's and, the biggest loader, you or Richard? I, I don't know. I'll ooh. have to think about that. Well, it's I think it's probably you. <laughs> well, I'm older than him. Um, he's, he's got far more stuff than I've got. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, but um, the thing is, uh, uh, unlike Richard, I'm a yeah. fan of lots and lots of television programs. Mm -hmm. Richard tends to be a fan of a few, but. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm... Got... Sarah, that's what they call throwing shade. Richard. <laughs> Richard, if you're watching, if you're listening, mate, you've got a right of reply. No, Richard is more selective. We need to get Richard on as well, don't we? <laughs> when he was doing season 17, yes. he was going on about it and say, I said, oh, um, until the recent series, that was my least favourite season of Doctor Who, was season yeah. 17. Um, I liked it more after watching the Blu-ray, so I re-reviewed some of my views, but I can tell you, as regards all television, I've never been disappointed. Um, I know watching Badger's Ben, people think, oh, it's quite creaky. I love it. I love it. Uh, old programs, um, the hidden truth that they, they showed, no hiding place. I love them all. They're great. Um, but I can like some modern television as well, as I said. But I was watching a, one with Martin Compton, um, Our House, I think it was called. Oh, yeah. And um, it was quite good. It wasn't as good as a Francis Durbridge serial, but it had bad language in it, which was completely unnecessary. Why, why did they do that? Why did they spoil it? And it was it was extended in a way. There was lots of shots of nice scenery and so But, you know, I, I'm much more interested. Prolong in the production yeah. rather than focusing on the drama. Yeah. 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 That's the thing. It's, it's it, it looks good, um, but it's not the same. I like the interactions between characters. Um, one of my favourite programmes uh, was The Guardians. Now, The Guardians um, was the Gwyneth Powell, Missy McCluskey from Grange Hill. It was the first big production he, she did. And The Guardians was uh, about 1970, I think it was. It starred Sir Luckham, the White Guardian. Um, uh, it was also got Richard Herndl, the uh, pretend first doctor. And there was a scene in that I remember, it's a dialogue, and it went on for about 10 minutes or something. But I find it fascinating. It was just a dialogue between two people. And it was fascinating um, just, just to, to watch it. You didn't have to have all these fancy special effects and all these stuff. 
Um, there's a place for them. Um, um, I, I would agree that some programs look fantastic. I was told by a friend of mine that Perry Mason, the new uh, revamped Perry Mason, yeah, it looks good. Millions. It cost about sort of um, eighty million or something for eight episodes. Yeah. That's obscene to my. It's too much. Um, that's the one of the, the things. Um, television has got waste. There is a tremendous waste. There is no guarantee. Even back in the 60s, in the two-channel days, where you could watch everything you wanted to watch because there were other things, social occasions or sport or something else that you could do. Uh, and you would spend your time in that and spend your time reading. Uh, now, So there's all these programs that people might want to watch and might enjoy, but A, th th they don't know about them, uh, and be there. Don't watch. make the time for, or there's too much competition mm -hmm. for other things to watch, pulling them pulling them in different directions. For the, yeah. Yeah. Their, viewing, their viewing time, we've got, yeah, we've got more to, more we can potentially watch than ever, but seemingly less time to squeeze it all in, Sarah. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and obviously viewing habits has changed as well. I mean, there's, it's very rare now that people do sit around as a family and watch a program every week which is i think is a real shame i do try and keep that we have one night a week where i still do that with my children oh, uh, but yeah, because of you know people are working different times and there's other things going off and you can just catch it up later which is as its place you know it's it's nice to have that i think there's something about just sitting together and experiencing something as a family well, I was uh, when Doctor Who came back first, and then they did Merlin. I thought mm -hmm. they were, they were going to do more of that. But you see, I think there's a political reason, because as, as you know, I'm very interested in politics, not party politics, politics yeah, and yeah, politics. Yeah. If you have people, whether it was in the sixties and seventies, uh, lots of people gathered around watching a shared experience. For example, Kathy Kim Home was a, a famous play. And it's from it that play Shelter was born. The Biafran War, which was dreadfully saw pictures of starving children, had in fact people watched it. If you have a common culture, it bonds people together. If mum's watching one program, dad's watching another program, son watching another program, mm -hmm. the daughter's watching another program, you don't have the cohesion. Um, as I was growing up, everybody knew who Ina Sharples was, whether you watched Coronation Street or not. Mm -hmm. Everybody knew who David Nixon was, uh, who, who was a great hero of mine. Um, they had a common culture and people felt more together. And that's what, sadly, we've lost. Um, yes, it's good that people have their own uh, interest programs, whether you're interested in gardening, there's a lot of gardening programs, interested in cooking, there's dozens of cooking programs. And there should be sort of um, specialists. But it's like in education. Some schools had core subjects, the English class, RE, or PSD, uh, and then options. And that's what I feel that we should have. We, we should have programs that everybody can watch, everybody can watch, and then programs for special uh, interest groups. And that, a combination of that, because television is a great way of bringing people together. And I think we've lost it. And I feel that that's very sad. And Doctor Who was one of these things that brought people together. 
And it did when it came back. It brought people together. But then, of course, there was agendas and um, sort of meant things. Things got in the way, didn't they? Somehow yeah. it's got lost in the last few years. But bringing this full circle to Doctor Who, we've heard you talk a great length about not just Doctor Who, but about telefantasy and television in general and your, your life watching this stuff and sort of soaking it all in. But I was, I was wondering, as somebody who, who has kept watching the show, and clearly, Ian, please don't take this the wrong way, your inner child is very much alive and, and hungry still for yeah. more. You know, I know you've said that you love this vintage material and mm. you know, the things that have, that have come along since now you've carried on, you've carried on watching Doctor Who and other, and other telefantasy, you're very aware that the thing has grown. But to see Doctor Who be reissued, the, the 60s stuff that you saw as new, to see that reissued on Blu-ray, to see those missing episodes that you've also seen, to see them kind of brought back to life as best as we can, either through telesnaps or animation. To see all this happening and new audiences, younger fans latching onto it mm. and it being enjoyed almost. It, it's it's kind of, I think it's at the point now where something which, when you were a boy, it could have been written off as the cheapest looking show and uh, just a piece of ephemera that would have its time in the sun and then it would pass into history. That hasn't happened. The series continues to endure even through catastrophes that we've recently seen to its entire intellectual property. Could you have predicted back then that Doctor Who would endure to the extent that it has? If, even when you were on the convention scene in the 70s and the 80s, the fact that it, we're now in 2022, heading up to that 60th anniversary year, how do you feel about it all now? I, I would describe it as a modern mythology, but is that being over-romantic as well? <laughs> no, I mean... Um... Oh, the, when I used to do interviews for TARDIS, uh, I, I did a regular interviews and I, I used to send people um, uh, sort of questions and a massive paper so they could write the answers. The best one I've got was from John Wiles when he went into real detail um, about his time in Doctor Who. Um, did I think it would go on? Um, as I said, Part of me, and this seems strange, part of me wished it would finish uh, and so I could get my life back, but that wasn't the case. It's no idea. The video recorders came in and uh, I used them. Uh, I mean, uh, when the videos came in was great because you could do all the things you wanted to do uh, when Doctor Who was on and then come back and hope that it, it would record it. But you, you tended to know people who could could lend you if, if it didn't record. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't the the pressure on that. So that was different. But I used to ask the people, why do you think Doctor Who has lasted so long? Um, the BB, I, I once read an article uh, where the BBC said it was cheaper making new Doctor Who stories than repeating the old ones. So that's why they <laughs> because it was cheap. It was cheaper. It's it. There was various times. I mean, um, when um, Bill Hartnell, uh, they wanted to get rid of him. Um, sadly, um, there was problems there. There were problems. I think uh, they were going to do one John Pertwee season, 
and then try to have something else. But the, the possibilities weren't there. I mean, there was, a, there was talk at one time of Quatermass as a replacement. But Nigel Neal hated Doctor Who with a vengeance. He really hated Doctor Who, which, which was quite interesting. They, did, they kept trying to fit, trying to find things to replace it with, didn't they? Whether, it was, whether yeah. it was bringing in Star Trek, whether it was bringing in the tripods and sort of pushing Doctor Who aside completely, or when Russell T. Davies left even, you know, they considered resting the show, taking yeah. it off again yeah. then yeah. because they, they didn't really see, Sarah, that anybody else could could take it forward. They, the mm-hmm. complete failure of the imaginations of the people who were who sat in boardrooms looking at the schedules and, and thinking, God, you know, what could we possibly have that could re- that could replace Doctor Who? And, and it's interesting because one of my other favourite programmes for a long time, and I've been in the fandom for that from, from the beginning, was The Prisoner. And The Prisoner was fascinating oh. because only 17 episodes were made. They did a remake series, which I watched. It wasn't very good. Um, but uh, there was a limited number of episodes. The Avengers came to an end with a, a ne- an ending episode. Adam Adamant sadly didn't. But um, uh, apparently Adam Adamant was interesting because um, I, I, I d- discovered that there were plans for a third season, but there was another program they wanted to make instead of it, so they were dropped. Uh, they wanted to remake Adam Adamant about 1996 or seven. I remember um, talking. I was at a, a, a lecture from Michael Jackson, who was the controller at that time. He was talking about bringing it back, but sadly that, that didn't happen. Um, why is Doctor Who lasted another program didn't? Um, well, I think it was a soap. Um, I don't think though that there'll be another program like Doctor Who. EastEnders, Coronation Street, Emmerdale, because these have built up a loyalty. Um, people have made sacrifices often to see them, mm-hmm. and they'll not be. I mean, the, the, apparently Neighbours is, is, is being pulled because of the money thing. Uh, will Doctor Who be pulled? It's got, imagine, right from the start, you see, Doctor Who had some things that other people, other shows didn't have. There was two Badgers Bend, uh, novels. They weren't based on TV series. Um, they were original novels. Um, but it was unusual. Doctor Who had a novelization a year after it had started. Then not long after they had a film on it. So Doctor Who, and they were talking about radio series with Peter Gujang. Um, so right from the beginning, Doctor Who had many heads like the Hydra. It yeah. wasn't just one. Yeah. And so it was difficult to stop. Now, it's interesting because I can't keep up with all the Big Finish uh, CDs. I don't uh, think Big Finish can keep up with all the Big Finish CDs. <laughs> there are so much Doctor Who. Yeah. Uh, when I was growing up, you got 25 minutes on a Saturday. Um, you got <laughs> three novelizations throughout the 60s. And you got a comic strip, a TV comic, and, you know, so lots yeah. of Alex. But that was about it. it. It's just so imbued in our consciousness, so imbued in our society, that it would be very, very difficult to, to, to come to an end because they would create maybe films or um, different ways of doing it. Um, I agree with Russell. The Who-niverse uh, is vast. I mean, Big Finish yes. really used it um, uh, in a tremendous way. <laughs> 
and Russell is completely right. And um, I think, no, I may be wrong, that we wouldn't have got Jody if Elizabeth Slayton had uh, had lived, uh, because Elizabeth Slayton really played a version of the Doctor in inverted commas. Um, so that had that covered, and then was Torchwood for the adults and the Doctor Who mm -hmm. confidential for people who like documentaries of Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. um, so it wouldn't have ended up the way it did. And a lot of people, I mean, there's a lot of people who don't like me criticizing uh, Jodie Whittaker because, but I think character-wise is important because especially with fantasy television, if you don't have a level of reality, um, if, if it's become so ridiculous, um, it loses something. Particularly, the expression it, I hear a lot is internal logic, Ian. Yes, yes, yeah. I would say. Yeah. Well, I, know, <laughs> I, think, I think that, I think recently with Doctor Who, there seems to have been a shift in focus where they seem to think that everybody wanted to be the Doctor. You know, the viewer wanted to be the Doctor, whereas I always felt that it was, we wanted to be the companion. We was like, we was the extra companion, like you were saying earlier. So if there was one, two, three people, you were that extra one, and you went on the journey with it. And I kind of think that's the kind of the mistake they made. You know, I actually found it more difficult to connect with a female doctor because I, I, I don't want to see myself represented on screen. Um, I, I want to be the companion. I want to go on an adventure. And I think that kind of, that element of it has gotten lost along the way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the Doctor was an interesting... Now, I hope you don't uh, dislike what I'm going to say. Um, the Doctor was always, as you say, we talked about Dr. Smith similarities, wasn't a very... Had, had sides to him that were not very pleasant, which in a female character is more difficult, I think, than in a male character. Um, the, the doctor would commit acts, which if a female character did, um, would be more difficult. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I, but that's the way um, I see things. Um, I, I was delighted that they had um, Fima, uh, Martha as a companion. Mm -hmm. I thought she was, uh, I really liked her. She's one of my actress. favorites of the- Absolutely wonderful. She was my favorite. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they could have, they could have stopped all this hassle. And I, I said it a lot on, online, if they had made nothing wrong with having a female lead companion, nothing wrong with that at all, mm -hmm. uh, a female lead in a, in a show, great. But don't make it tied to what a man was. It, it's, I remember when the, the 50th anniversary and they had that scene when all the doctors lined up that you showed. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is a bit ridiculous. There's too many of them. There is too many of them. Uh, oh, where's Billy out his own uh, in his rightful place? But, um, you know, it, it, it strikes credulity to an extent. And why do you need all that back baggage and backstory? It, must, it would be more interesting to create a different kind of character. And you could have a time traveler who is a different kind of character to the Doctor. Mm -hmm. um, because the Doctor changed. And I must admit, I preferred the Doctor as a multi-character, multifaceted 
uh, strange individual who you couldn't understand. That is the important. And of course, strong female characters. Barbara, one of my favorite companions, was a really strong uh, female character, uh, brilliantly played by Jackie Jackie Hill. Uh, it was a tragedy. I, I actually got to meet her. Uh, she was lovely. She really? Yeah. Oh, lovely. Yeah. I've actually met most of the... I, I haven't met Bill, but I got a letter from him. Um, I think I met William Russell. Definitely met Jackie Hill. I met Caroline Ford a, a few occasions. And... Um, Yes, it was it was it was lovely to see them and, and to meet them and, uh, and but um, I always fancied myself as being Michael Parkinson or Simon D. <laughs> yeah. I could see that. I wasn't <laughs> in awe of them. Uh, <laughs> say that no, they were interesting people, and um, I enjoy listening to people as well as talking to them or at them. Um, it's interesting. Um, I used to have to do a lots of obituaries, and when I did them, um, I, I was fascinated by what is this person? Who is this person? Um, what um, what motivates them? And I'm in, always interested in the person behind the character. And if the person is quite different to the character, it's fascinating. I got a lovely letter from Roger Delgado. Uh, when you had a letter from Roger Delgado. Yes, oh, I got wow. a letter from Roger Delgado. And um, he, he, he made out, sorry, I can't make out your name. Um, and then he, he talked to me, uh, wrote to me. And then at the end, his pen had run out of ink. And he put at the end, see, you can't make out my name either. So, uh, <laughs> yes. Fascinating um, stuff. I wrote Absolutely to, who, who else did I write to? Uh, Patrick, um, of course, and I was very fascinated. I don't think it's in the remake of the uh, well, when the book was reprinted, but in the original version, my letter to Patrick appeared in the book that his son had written, and I was fascinated by that. I didn't think he would have kept it um, because, as I said, um, I, I, I was an admirer of Patrick as, as an actor. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was fantastic. And, he went on to do the feathered serpent, the, the Aztec one, which is brilliant as well. Sorry, I keep getting messages from you. Um, which is uh, he did a lot of love, love, fantastic roles. Um, he was in um, Paul Temple after he did Doctor Who, and then he was in the Six Wives of Henry VIII. So he, he was very fortunate he could get to continue as a as a jobbing actor, uh, and it w was great. Um, that you could see him in all these roles. And he didn't always get big roles because he played the pawnbroker in uh, David Copperfield, uh, not in the episode that, that I watched instead of Lost in Space episode one, uh, but he, he was in just a cameo role, but he, he, he regularly appeared in Dick's, uh, Dickens' his novels. And that's the thing, in the olden days, um, they had the Sunday classic serial and the Doctor Who, and they were not made by the children's department because the children's department of the BBC was closed at that time. They had closed down, I think they had decided. So they were made by the drama department. So it was always, Doctor Who was always a drama series like everything else. It was a serial, drama, not serial, because it was plays, serial, and series. And, and you know, it, Ian, the amount of times that I told my classmates and my teachers and my family that 
in the 80s when they were telling me that I was obsessed with this children's program, they got fed up of me saying it. We're going to have to get you back on soon, Ian, to tell, to tell us more about your life with the Doctor in and out of the TARDIS and about telefantasy in general. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, for bringing your cherished memories and sharing your thoughts, your uh, wisdom and wit. And as we get close to that 60th anniversary year, I think this conversation with you has just hammered it home, really, how every era of Doctor Who is somehow, it seems more alive than ever, Sarah, and no more the case, strangely, than than those early black and white days. And that's due in no small part to the generosity and the spirit of community of people such as yourself, Ian. So thank you again for your time. So I could sit and listen to you all day, you know. I just, yeah, I just love... I wish all my pupils sit at me, but they don't. I feel like we've only just scratched the surface. Thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. We'd like to continue to feed your ears by inviting you to listen to these other great shows on the Fandom Podcast Network. It starts with our flagship show, Culture Clash, discussing the latest in entertainment pop culture. Blood of Kings, Immortals Take Notice, our show covering the entire Highlander universe. Couch Potato Theaters, where we celebrate our favorite movies. Time Warp, the fandom flashback podcast discussing a year in movies and our favorite retro movie and TV pop culture topics. Good evening, discussing all things Alfred Hitchcock. Union Federation, our Star Trek and Orville show. Hair Metal, the 80s and early 90s rock metal podcast. Type 40, our show covering the time-traveling Doctor Who universe with host Dan Hadley. Lethal Mullet, an 80s and 90s action film podcast with host Adam P. O'Brien. Also check out the Lethal Mullet Network for more great podcasts. What a Piece of Junk, a Star Wars podcast with hosts Scott, Derek, and Nathan. Making Treks, a Star Trek podcast, a deep dive into the final frontier with hosts Mark Newbold and Adam P. O'Brien. And check out our newest shows, The Fandom Show, our monthly fandom podcast network live YouTube exclusive show about the month's hottest topics in fandom, and the FPN True Believers MCU podcast discussing the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the related Marvel television and streaming MCU universe, including the connections to the original Marvel comics. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on several platforms. Please subscribe to the Fandom Podcast Network YouTube channel to receive notifications of new podcast episodes and live events. You can enjoy all of the Fandom Podcast Network audio podcasts on our master feed at fpnet.podbean.com. The Fandom Podcast Network is on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and iTunes. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on Facebook. You can email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. You can also find the Fandom Podcast Network on Instagram at Fandom Podcast Network and on Twitter at FanPod Network. Thank you for listening and remember, respect others and enjoy your fandom. Yes, we've teased and tantalized you there, and we can even clothe you too. There's merch to match all of those shows, including Type 40. If you head over to the tpublic.com store, search for the Fandom Podcast Network, you'll see the store full of all the team colors for all of the podcasts on everything from t-shirts to phone cases and tapestries. Treat yourself, 
treat your other selves and it all goes to support the fandom podcast network into the bargain so everybody wins big chat with a big character he had such a lot to say that Ian McLachlan didn't he what a brilliant guest yeah, yeah, fascinating guy, uh, and a lot of those people that, that that sort of go back to the beginning there are, you know, they're fascinating people. I remember seeing Ian very, very well at um, at conventions. That was that was where 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 I sort of first encountered um, Ian. And so again, actually, this this nicely ties in because this goes back to anniversaries again, as everything seems to with Doctor Who, because of course my, as I've spoken about before, my very very first convention experience was the 20th anniversary celebration at Longleat. That was where I first found out there even was a Doctor Who Appreciation Society. I can still remember now to this day, you know, the joy of getting details back within weeks of having joined DWOS to learn that the next big convention, Panopticon, was going to be in Birmingham, literally my <laughs> hometown down the road for me. It was just so exciting. And so that was my very, very first Doctor Who Appreciation Society convention was was in Birmingham, Panopticon in, in 1983, and uh, I can't remember to be honest whether Ian was was at that as as one of the um, panel interviewers. But if not at that one, he certainly went to a lot of them. And in, in those days, from sort of the mid eight, well, the early 80s th- right the way through to sort of the late 80s, early 90s, I went to a lot of conventions, and very very often Ian would be there as uh, as one of the interviewers of the guests. But he was always great, to, a, a good character to see around conventions and one of those familiar faces that made you feel, oh, yeah, I am actually part of a bit of a family here. So it's a good feeling, good feeling. I can so imagine him holding court. And I believe there is a ton of footage of him on YouTube at various events in interviewing people, interviewing yeah. Doctor Who luminaries, yeah. such as the people oh. that he mentioned in the interview, you know, Patrick Trout and John Pertwee, Nick Courtney, you you name them. He's interviewed pretty much everybody. Yeah. So uh, maybe if we if we have a word and do a quick search, we can find some of this stuff and get Ian back, because he is very keen to come back once once he's uh, had, a, had a rest and a chocolate biscuit, maybe, and a warm <laughs> drink, getting pumped up again. But speaking to Ian, I feel has ticked a major box in line with what Type 40's been about over the last 100 episodes. And I understand the efforts are beginning to have uh, all those uh, missing episodes reconstructed in some way via Ian's brain patterns. So they're going to be extrapolated and then fired and remastered and all that kind of thing, if he can sit still for long enough, that is. <laughs> they will be able to do it. We joke, but at one of these days, they will actually be able to do that. But it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Doctor Who, I think, is just one of those shows that is very... It's very informed by its heritage. And I, that was one of the things that actually I was always pleased about with the Russell T. Davis years. They weren't tied, they weren't tethered to the past, but also they were respectful of the past and they recognised it. Certain production teams that we won't go into haven't always been quite so respectful of the past in the same way. But I think the Doctor Who heritage is very, very important. And so to have somebody like Ian talking about not only seeing those early episodes, but then, as you say, interviewing personally people who are sadly no longer with us. You know, nowadays we have the likes of... of, of Toby Haydoke or, or Matthew Sweet that are interviewing people but bless yeah. them you know there are people that they simply can't interview and so it's great to have somebody like Ian who's got the the background of the episodes but also the background of talking to the people that made the show in what I think are the absolute golden glory days anyway. All that time in the trenches <laughs> it's made me it's made me want to uh, go to conventions again cause it's been a long time since I've been to one so maybe that would be something we can we can pop up I know that you're you've either just 
been to one or you're about to go to one, aren't you? So where are you going to be and when? <laughs> well, of course, this is the beauty of Doctor Who, isn't it? It doesn't matter whether it's in the past or the future because it all works back. It's timey-wimey, isn't it? Um, yes, um, I will uh, be going to, to Capital at uh, Gatwick Airport in, in a few days' time or a few days ago. I'm actually trying to think the last convention I went to. It's quite a while ago. It's, it, I mean, we're literally talking years and years, probably 10 years, maybe more oh. than that. I did since I did a convention. I don't know why. It was one of those things. I loved conventions, but I just sort of got out of the habit of it. I think I probably thought, well, kind of seeing all the all the interviewees, all the guests that I want to see. But uh, and and so I'm I kind of been there and done it. Do I really need to do it again? And now I'm really getting a hankering now. That nostalgia starts to kick in. I just thought I remember the last one. It was the 2013, so ten years ago, pretty much nine years ago at at Excel. That was the last convention I did. So I'm looking forward to it, or I will have enjoyed it, depending on when you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to get you back in and Neil as well, and you can tell us all about how it went, what happened, and uh, yeah, whether those monsters, whether they got loose or not. Because I know that Neil, he keeps them on a short yeah. leash, doesn't he? But they're, they're strong, some of them, aren't they? And Neil's only a little bloke. He is only a little bit. Yeah, he's brought he's brought me in as a minder. I mean, heaven, look, I'm even smaller than Neil, and so not much danger of me getting into Feast of Coast. But yeah, I'm looking forward to it because I've been a great supporter of... Um, of Neil Cole's uh, Museum of Classic Sci-Fi, literally since day one, I, you know, a real champion for it. I just love the place, and so it's a real honour and a pleasure for me to go there with Neil Cole and and just you know represent the the, the, the museum. It's, it's a good thing to do. So so that's where we'll be. So so yeah, we'll be there with our with our stand with um, various monsters on, all fighting for freedom. <laughs> Absolutely. Just some okay. of the nuggets of gold that are coming up for you on Time for Doctor Podcast. If you stick with us but that is the old girl that familiar sound bubbling and rumbling away starting up and calling time on this 100th edition of type 40 a doctor who podcast but there's more on the way i can promise you that look out for it all wherever you found this it could have been on the dedicated home feed for type 40 at type40.podbean.com maybe we rolled up on the podcatcher of your choice say Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Podbay, Podbean, wherever. And we're still on the fabulous Fandom Podcast Network's own master feed, loaded with all those treats for you on the weekly, on the daily, practically. It's all there. It's all kicking off on the feed. And again, thank you to the Fandom Podcast Network. Maybe you'd like to have your say about all of this. Maybe you've got a question for us or even for Ian. Why not reach out to us through our social media, Instagram and Twitter at Type40DoctorWho. And if you're feeling really brave and fancy some real-time, extra-dimensional chit-chat and celebration of this 100th episode, we'll head over to the Type40 Facebook group. If you go over to Facebook and just type Type40 into the search field, you'll find not just the Type40 Facebook group, but the Type40 Doctor Who DVD and Blu-ray group too. We've got two groups full of generations upon regenerations of fans talking about classic, new, and speculating about the all-new over there. Simon, where can people catch up with you on social media? Remind them of the good stuff again. <laughs> the only place they can find me is on Facebook, and you will find me on Facebook, specifically under the Hoonatics, W-H-O-N-A-T-I-C-S. Go and have a look at the Hoonatics on Facebook, and you'll find me there as the admin. We go back to 1987, Dan, 1987. <laughs> yeah, before the days of Facebook. 
when the communards were number one Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter as The Space Book, where I'm wheezing and groaning and tweeting and instering about all things geeky inside and outside of the TARDIS. Go and find me over there. Go and say, hi, we made it, mate. I'm really glad you were able to make <laughs> make this journey with me. It wouldn't have wouldn't been the same with, the without you. And it wouldn't have been the same without you. Thanks for listening. We always have the time. If you have the space here at Type 40, take care. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. A Doctor Who podcast is a Spacebook production for the Fandom Podcast Network with music by Problem Being.